In the best of all worlds, the selection of hymns and scripture readings and a text follows a theme being followed in the worship service, and that, of course, is much more obvious to the person planning that service than the people who are participating in it. But that song was chosen not only because of its delightfully happy tune and harmonies, but also because of the opening line, when the roll is called up yonder, uh, when the trumpet of the Lord shall sound, and time shall be no more. We'll have more to say about that in just a minute. I'm reading from Isaiah 55. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven, and do not return there but water the earth, and make it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void. But it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. Christian theologians speak of the transcendence and the eminence of God. The transcendence is the distance or the otherness of God, and eminence is the nearness of God. And here in this paragraph from Isaiah 55, we find a beautifully poetic reference by God himself, to his transcendence from us. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul laments the fact that we, even as the best of believers, still see through a glass darkly. And here God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways. The Bible teaches that as Christians, we are not completely different from God, because we still retain a vestige of that image in which Adam was made. But we're different enough in our understanding and values as to require a word or a revelation from God, that the errors in our thoughts and our ways of living might be corrected, and that we might know more perfectly the one who created us for his own purposes and offers to redeem us from the consequences of our errors by the death and in the life of his son, Jesus Christ. Some of the errors in our thinking are more obvious than others. There are three of them that I'd like to talk with you about this morning, and they have to do with the time of year in which we gather to worship. You're aware, I suspect, that this is the first Sunday of fall. It's a time in which all of us are particularly aware of the passage of time and the changing face of the creation that surrounds us. You'll remember, perhaps, that earlier this year, many of us signed a petition that was sent to our newly elected governor. It said, Dear Sir, believing the state of Michigan to be a place of refreshing and enticing beauty throughout the year, especially in winter, but also recognizing that too much of a good thing ceases to be a good thing, we whose signatures are affixed 
hereby petition you to issue a gubernatorial decree reducing the number of days in the month of January from 31 to 10, distributing the remaining 21 years as equitably as possible among the months of May and June and September and October. Whether or not you see the manifest wisdom of our petition, we remain your humble servants. For months, I've been disappointed that the governor chose to ignore our petition. But today, I have good news and I have bad news. The good news is that we finally heard from state government. The bad news is we're all under indictment. And the indictment makes some vague reference to inciting climate change. Now, that was all done tongue-in-cheek. You knew that then, and I trust that you know that now. But because on this particular Sunday, we're especially aware of the transition taking place in creation around us, one in which summer is fading and fall is making its presence known, it seemed good for us to think together about the thoughts of men and the thoughts of God. I think it's safe to say that most of us enjoy the seasons and the change from one to the other. Whoever said variety is the spice of life might well have been talking about the weather and the seasons. Each season we find refreshing at its beginning. Each season grows old with the passing of time, and this makes the next season welcome. But none of the seasons is quite so welcome to most of us as the fall. Early in the winter, when the barrenness of the world is lightly covered by the clean white of the first snow, and in the season that follows when we finally have reason to believe that the warmth of spring is here to stay, in those days when we find ourselves walking in cool pools of shade provided by the full summer foliage of the trees, but especially in this time of year, when signs abound that the good living days and the good sleeping nights of fall are here, we greet one another in worship, and with enthusiasm we say, These are the days the Lord has made, and we rejoice in them. There are many signs that fall is upon us. There are certain colors that always mark its arrival. There are the bright reds of the maple trees and the protective yellow of school buses the radiant orange of pumpkins, and the cobalt blue of shrink wrap. You have to be a boater to appreciate that, perhaps. We see the brilliance of the light of the sun early on fall mornings and in the fall evenings, and we notice the blue haze that often hovers over the horizon. On Friday evenings or on Saturday afternoons, we hear the snapping of school pennants in the breeze, the stutter of snare drums, the blare of brass, and the cheers of crowds filling football stadiums, the fresh smell of apples, the crunch of leaves beneath our feet. All of these things and more tell us before the calendar does that fall has come, and most of us find the change welcome. This march of the seasons is so regular and so appreciated a part of most of our lives that it's hard for us to imagine being really satisfied, really happy in a setting where those changes do not take place. 
While I was in the Navy, I spent about a year in San Diego, where the temperature and the climate almost never vary. I left my native Colorado in the summer, and I arrived on the West Coast in the summer. A few months later, while the aspens and the Rockies turned to brilliant yellow and stood out against the deep greens of the pines around them, it was still summer on the Pacific Coast. When the early snows were making for traditional Thanksgivings and Christmases in my home state, it was still summer in Southern California. And when the bears were stirring from their hibernation dens and the melting snows were feeding the mountain streams at the home where I wanted to be, it was still summer where I was. I find the sameness boring, and I miss the changes, as I think you probably would too. We talk about the weather. We joke about the weather. We complain about the weather. But most of us, if we were pressed would define the ideal human life as one that takes place in a setting where there are changes from season to season. Where that apparent transformation from life to death that we call spring takes place. And where enough snow falls to make at least Christmas traditional for us where at least some of the days are hot enough to make a glass of iced tea enjoyed in the shadow of a patio a welcome relief, and where the invigorating color show of fall lasts long enough to be noticed and enjoyed. Isaiah speaks of the difference between the thoughts of redeemed men and women and the thoughts of God. Our thought is that the perfect life is one in a place marked by a parade of changing seasons, a place where there are wide and perceptible differences in the appearance of creation and the temperatures of the air. To live otherwise would be boring and unsatisfying to us. We might disagree about which of the seasons is the best. We might argue about how long each season should be, if that were up to us or the governor. But we would all agree regarding the seasons that variety is indeed the spice of life. This is our understanding of the ideal human life. But then we come to the thoughts of God on this same subject. We open our Bibles, and there in the first verse of its first chapter, we find one of the fundamental tenets of our faith that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And we read on to find a broad-stroke description of the place where that man and that woman, made in the very image of God himself, first lived on the earth. It's called the Garden of Eden. It was a place deliberately created by God and designed for ideal human habitation. We have to assume that it was the perfect setting one in which man and woman were expected to be fully content, lacking nothing. Theirs was the ideal life. It was the perfect life. We read the lines of Genesis 1 and 2, and then we strain our visions to look between those lines to learn what we can about the climate and the possibility of change in the climate in the Garden of Eden. And we come away convinced that there was no spring thaw 
in the Garden of Eden. And there was no fall color show among its trees, and we know that there were trees in the Garden of Eden. We know that there was no precipitation because the Bible tells us specifically that the earth was offered or watered daily by a heavy dew. And the cataclysmic events described in Genesis 6 through 9, the record of the flood in the days of Noah, suggest that the earth before the flood was covered by clouds so thick that the sun and moon were probably little more than blurred orbs of life, faintly making a distinction between the nighttime and the daytime. This means that there was very little variation in temperature from month to month, and perhaps even from day to night. In other words, in the world as originally created by the God whose thoughts are not the same as ours, or at least in that place specifically designed for human happiness, there were no seasons at all. Yet we gather for worship in a new time, one in which we're rejoicing in the Christmas of the air and the brightness of the collars that mark this as the beginning of the fall season, and we say, this is good, and find it difficult to think of a really satisfying life without the seasons and the refreshing change that each brings with its appearance. But God, whose thoughts and ways are different from ours, placed our ancient parents in a setting in which there were no seasons, and he said this is very good. We turn our attention for a moment from the beginning to the end of the continuum of redeemed human life, and we wonder what heaven must be like, particularly with questions about time and the seasons in mind. This could be a longer discussion than we have time for this morning, and if we were to have that discussion, it would be both biblical and philosophical. It would involve defining time as the measurement of change and lead to the conclusion that if there are no changes, then there is no time. Heaven is the name that we give to that realm that transcends time. That state where God will be known by the redeemed beyond time as he has known us in time. In the shreds of information available to us in Scripture, we find no time references to heaven. No day and no night are mentioned or described. No summer, no fall, no winter, no spring. Just a continuous and glorious now. In heaven, there are no calendars. In heaven, no one wears a watch. There is no labor. There is no rest from labor. There is no time to plant. There is no time to reap that which was planted. There is no spring thaw. There are no fall colors in heaven. In heaven, there will be no beginning to our song, and there will be no end to our singing. Just eternal praise, just endless joy, just timeless fullness and peace. And in all of this, we discover a great gap between the thoughts of God and the thoughts of redeemed people. 
We say that the ideal life is lived in a setting in which the texture and appearance of creation change periodically. God declares that the ideal setting for human life is one in which there is no change at all. Now, about this great and obvious gap between our thoughts and those of the God we've gathered to praise, any serious Christian has serious questions. The first of these questions, and the most important of them, is this. What is there in me that causes me to differ so radically from God in my thoughts and my values? What caused God to say to me, my thoughts are not your thoughts? What prompted the apostle to bemoan that we see through a glass darkly? Could it be that sin has infected my thoughts and my values with its deadly poison? Could it be that my vision is dimmed, my understanding clouded by Adam's fallen nature that I carry from day to day, from season to season, more often than not accustomed to its weight and oblivious to its influence? Could it be that prayers of confession and pleas for wisdom would improve my lot? and bring my thought and my values into closer alignment with those of my Maker and my Redeemer. Realizing the great gap that exists between my thinking about what constitutes the ideal human life and the revelation of God forces me to ponder such things as this. But there's another question that arises from my recognition of this great gap, and it's this. Am I wrong to enjoy and to celebrate the changing of the seasons and the beginning of the fall? And I think the answer to that question has to be a very clear no for the following reasons. The Bible teaches us about the grace of God. Grace is a quality or a property of God that allows or causes him to do that, which has no natural explanation whatsoever and particularly to treat us in ways that we do not deserve to be treated because of the sin that is in our minds and hearts. Psalm 116 describes God as stooping carefully to hear the lisping, stammering prayers of his children. Psalm 103 reminds us that he knows our frame and he remembers that we are but dust. And Ecclesiastes 3 declares of God that he makes everything beautiful in its time. In the pleasure that we derive from the changing of the seasons, we see the marvelous, unexpected, condescending kindness of our God. He could have changed his own creation in ways that would make us miserable in that creation, and we would have deserved that, but instead... Like his act of undeserved goodness represented by the clothes that he made for his fallen subjects after the fall. Like the rainbow that appeared at his command at the end of the flood. Like Jesus taking our place in judgment and death. So God gives us eyes to see beauty even in things distorted by sin and blesses us with great joy in our intuitive enjoyment of the work of his hands, even though that work is somehow marred and limited by human sin. 
It was not of the world as originally designed and created, but one somehow affected by human sin, that a man inspired by the truth and filled by the Spirit of God was prompted to say that the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament proclaims his handiwork. It is most certainly a good thing for us to savor and to talk about and to rejoice in the beauty of God's creation. It's a better thing for us to look beyond the beauty of things that exist only in time to see the even greater beauty of their designer and maker. And it's a better thing yet for us to lose ourselves in his praise and to wander with the psalmist when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you should visit him? There are two other ways in which we see this gap between the thoughts of redeemed men and women on the one hand and the thoughts of God on the other. They both have to do with our thinking about what constitutes the ideal or the perfect or the best life. Most people, if pressed, would define the perfect human life as one in which there is an absolute minimum of work required. At the top of our list of possible scenarios is that of a person born into such great wealth that he never has to work a day or an hour in his life. His every wish is anticipated by attendance, and he has more than enough money to buy anything that his heart desires. Not far below that possibility is that of a man who retires early from his labors with a good income and secure benefits. And somewhere behind these longings is our latent resistance to authority and control, whether that of a contract or a time clock or a supervisor. But when the conscientious Christian tries to probe the mind of God about the place of work in the good life, he discovers another gap between his own thoughts and those of God. In our fallen state, God delivered a law to his people. In that law, he addressed the subject of work, and he said in that law, six days you will labor. As if the God who knows us better than we know ourselves sees labor as necessary to human happiness and of therapeutic value to us in the broken state of our lives. But even before the fall, we read in the opening chapters of the Bible that God assigned chores to the man who was made in his image. It was Adam's job. It was his work. It was his labor to tend the Garden of Eden. We shop for labor-saving devices and imagine the perfect life as one free from the rigors of work. God defines the perfect life as one in which labor plays a valued role. Another way in which our view of the ideal life differs from that of God has to do with where we live. The dream of many, many Americans is to live on a quiet piece of land out in the country, beyond the city limits, perhaps even in some remote part of the state. If you start downtown Flint and move off in any direction, Generally speaking, you'll find that the further you get from downtown Flint, the bigger the houses are and the larger the plots of land on which those houses are found. 
And today it's not unusual to find what was unthinkable to our grandparents, to find houses built on two and three and five and ten acre parcels of land. People who grow up in a crowded city neighborhood can't wait to be able to afford to move out into more peaceful and rural areas. And it's interesting to notice that when people build on wooded land out in the country, maybe you've noticed this as I have, they put in driveways going through the trees to their houses. And the shortest distance between the road and their house or their garage, of course, is a straight line. But they choose generally not to do that because that would make their house visible from the road. And instead, generally speaking, the road goes in, jogs off to the right or the left, and then goes to the house where it is literally invisible to passers-by. We want space and privacy. And we define the ideal life as one in which these properties are ours. But in our search to know the thoughts of God, we come to the book of Revelation in its description of heaven the perfect and eternal home of the redeemed. And we discover that it's a city. There we find detailed descriptions of its streets, its walls, and its gates. To us, the perfect life is one lived outside the city, one undisturbed by the presence of others. But when the Lord said, I go to prepare a place for you, that place is a city set on a hill with golden streets, bejeweled gates, and teeming with the redeemed. I point out all of this to me first and to you, that we might come to know that in some of the most common issues of life, there are, in fact, gaps between our thinking about what is good and what is true and what is important and the thoughts of God. It's an embarrassing thing, but it's a helpful thing for us to be aware of that. God said, my thoughts are not your thoughts, and God was right on. May knowing this lead us to that meekness that Christ pronounced blessed. And may knowing this create in us a hungering and thirsting for an understanding of that word that God has sent forth into the world and promised that it shall not return unto me void, but shall accomplish what I please and prosper in the thing for which I sent it. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for these reminders that we are not yet where we long to be. People whose hearts and minds are fully aligned with your own. And we pray the result of our having thought about these things together will not take away from our joy of the seasons and our pride in our homes, but rather will bring each one of us to his knees in your presence, saying, Lord, be merciful unto me, a sinner, asking that you shape our lives, that you shape our passions, that you shape our thoughts in order that the fullness of the joy and the peace you have for us might be ours even in time, and that we might be found your good and faithful servants. This we ask in the name.